Good morning. This morning we're going to be zeroing in on verses 22 and 23 of that first chapter of Matthew. It's Matthew chapter 1, uh, verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord said, the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Please pray with me. Fathers, we come to this, your holy word, and we come to this account, most amazing account of the incarnation of your Son. And as we enter into this season where we celebrate that incarnation, I pray that you would give us hearts to see him anew. Give us hearts to love him more, to worship him from the heart, in spirit and in truth, and to love one another because of it. And we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. This time of year, uh, we'll hear more and more, probably not in the mainstream news, but in our lives about Jesus Christ. The Christ babe, the son of Mary. You know, uh, in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus asked his disciples, and he asked them first, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And the Son of Man was Jesus' favorite name for himself, rooted in the Old Testament. And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. I wonder this season uh, how... People on the street would answer that question if you were to ask them, who is Jesus? There's a, in the current issue of Modern Reformation, I don't know if any of you get this little magazine, but I'd recommend it to you. There is an article called Pop Culture Jesuses. The whole issue is about who is Jesus. And... An article is called Jesus According to Pop Culture, and uh, there are three categories of the Jesuses that this author found in the culture around him. That Some of these may sound familiar to you. Some of these may sound blasphemous to you if you are a believer in the biblical Christ. And some of them may bring a smile even to your face because some of them are sort of tongue-in-cheek. The first category is there's the macho Jesus. Uh, have you ever seen a picture of Jesus wearing a tank top with a, with a tattoo of a heart on his arm and kind of all buffed up? And he has various incarnations. The muscle Jesus who uh, can uh, be our champion and fight us through things of the world. The coach Jesus. Uh, where, where is most of the... Uh, 
airtime given to anything Christian these days. It has more, it's usually in connection with football games and prize fighters and things like that, giving thanks to Christ after a game or after a good play or something like that. So Coach Jesus is kind of the father figure for uh, the soccer moms and so forth, and he, he's just there to kind of pull us through and coach us through life and uh, give us a little impetus uh, for going on. There's the Super Jesus, which is more like the superhero Jesus. In fact, a recent movie on uh, Superman that some of you may have seen actually played on this theme where Jor-El, Superman's father, sends Jesus into the world uh, telling him you're going to be like a god to them. And oddly enough, at age 33 is when he starts his ministry of crime fighting and there are all kinds of allusions to the biblical Jesus from this superhero. Another category is uh, the hipster Jesus that kind of comes to people that are fashion conscious and cool and kind of sort of affirms them. One slogan was, He loved you before you were cool. Is that the Jesus that you know? <laughs> well, he's out there in the culture. And then there's the urban Jesus, the, the, uh, the one touted by hip-hop artists and uh, many rappers of which uh, Kanye West, uh, Jesus is the prime example. And in his case and in his music and in his performances, it's not clear whether he thinks he is Jesus or whether he's talking about someone external to himself, but he's, he's sort of uh, the one that rescues people and brings them up to ter from terrible beginnings to make them thrive in a world that's against them and so forth. Uh, but none of these Jesuses uh, really reflect the biblical Jesus. There's not much talk about sin or redemption or anything of that sort. Um, so who is Jesus? Is he just a good teacher? Have you heard that one? Um, a therapeutic helper of some kind that helps us get our act together? Is he a cosmic bellhop that's at our disposal to bring us whatever we think we need? Uh, we just pray about it and Jesus delivers it uh, via an Amazon drone or something to our front door and we're, uh, we're good to go. Obviously, all these fall way short of the Jesus Christ of the Bible. So as we're coming to this Advent season, um, I thought it would be a good time to think about who the Christ of the Bible is. And I think there's no better way to do that than the centerpiece of this passage that Raul just read, uh, and especially just verses 22 and 23, where uh, we see a name attributed to Jesus, which is Emmanuel, spelled with an I or an E, depending on what translation you have, which means, Matthew tells us, uh, God with us. So we're going to kind of take this apart and, and think about that name a bit this morning. Uh, a little commercial break. Uh, Katie and I, our ministry is Cloud Haven, uh, up above Cloudcroft in uh, in Alamogordo, and it's been our theme at our Christmas at Cloud Cave and celebrations over the years to expound on this idea of God with us. Some of you have been with us for those and heard that uh, 
heard various preachers come at that from all different kinds of angles. Uh, just as a, a brief commercial, that is next Saturday night. You are all welcome to come. We have a, a great time. It's at 6.30 p.m. You, you can be out of there by 8 or 8.30 if you want to, uh, if you need to drive back here uh, Saturday night. But we'd love to have you all. If you're free, please come join us. So let's look at this name, God with us, and we'll kind of look at it word by word. If you, if you dwell, uh, read over it again, this account of, of, of Matthew's, there's two major ideas that, that uh, come out at you. First of all, that everything about this birth of, of Jesus Christ is supernatural uh, in character, that it's all God's doing. It's not something engineered by mankind and brought together by uh, our power, but everything about it is God's doing. And the second uh, major thing that jumps out at you is that Jesus Christ is himself God. He starts out this chapter with a genealogy, if you look back a few verses, uh, and it uh, it's the genealogy of Jesus Christ, we're told. By the way, Christ is a name, but it's also a title. It means Messiah. It's the same as the Messiah of the of the Old Testament in the Greek. Uh, and it tells us in uh, verse 1 that he is the son of David, the son of King David, who lived about a thousand years before Christ came. And you recall that God made a promise to David that one would come that would sit on his throne forever. And that's the connection Matthew, who is writing primarily to Jews, wants, wants to get going in our minds right away that this one who has come is the promised Messiah. And it kind of culminates down in uh, verse 16. And it's if you've read through this, you know it's the the begats, or so-and-so begat so-and-so, so-and-so was the father of so-and-so, or it was uh, born to so-and-so, depending on the translation you have, all the way down to verse 16, and to Jacob, is, this is uh, not, not Jacob the patriarch, but Jacob the father of Joseph, uh, Mary's husband. And that's the way it's stated. It's all these begats, or begats, or was born, or fathered, and then suddenly it's Joseph, the husband of Mary. Okay? It's Joseph's genealogy, but the focus shifts right at the end to Mary and her offspring, which must have been a big surprise to Matthew's uh, original readers. And it's an angel of the Lord that, that, is, uh, that has come to Joseph in our passage and is revealing this uh, stuff to him. God sends an angel to Joseph three different times. Uh, this time, and when after the baby's born, to tell him to go to Egypt because Herod is seeking to kill the baby. And later on, when it's safe to come back, that same angel appears to Joseph again. But you need to know, for instance, in verse 20, that, that Joseph is not active in this process. What is he? He's asleep. He's, he's dreaming this. This is something being brought to him by God in a dream. It uses the language, the, uh, that which is conceived in her, 
as to what's going on with Mary. Now, does that is that active language or passive language? That's what's Mary's role in that. She's a receptacle. I mean, somebody else is doing the conceiving, and that's uh, of course we're told that it's from or through or by of the the agency of the Holy Spirit. All this is God's doing. There's no precedent for this in any Jewish or pagan literature or myth. It's not like the crass stories in some myths about gods having sexual relationship with human women and producing offspring of of some kind. Uh, The verses that we're looking at are quoted from Isaiah. Uh, which is, he is just called the prophet in verse 22. But it's Isaiah 7:14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And if you read on into chapter 8 of Isaiah, there's sort of approximate fulfillment of that. A guy arrives on the scene. He, he hardly seems to be the fullness of somebody who would be named God with us, but it became clear, you know, there was a period of silence of 400 years from when the last of the prophets spoke to Israel until John the Baptist, who was really the last of the Old Testament prophets. But there was 400 years in there, and for at least 300 of that in the rabbinical literature, you can trace this idea that uh, they did not think this prophecy of Isaiah 7 had been fulfilled. And they were looking for something miraculous like a virgin birth. It's not something the disciples made up after the fact, uh, after Jesus was born, trying to give him some more creds or something like that. This was rooted in history and the faithful remnant in Israel was looking for a miracle like this. Uh, Verse 22, he says, what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. So Isaiah, too, is portrayed as passive. He, he, he didn't understand the full implications of, uh, of his own words. It's God who's speaking through these prophets. Uh, Peter puts it this way in Second Peter. Know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And that's the language that Matthew uses to describe this prophecy in this passage. So all this, everything that's associated with the birth of Christ is God's doing. But more importantly, Matthew wants us to know that Jesus Christ himself is God. Verse 21, you shall call his name Jesus, which means he saves, Savior. Well, in what sense is Jesus a Savior? Is it in the pop cultural sense? Is he just a muscular guy? Is he a cosmic bellhop? Is it therapeutic, cultural, political? You know, the Jews are waiting for somebody to deliver them from Rome and off from under the thumb of Rome. Was it military? No. The verse says to save them from their sins. That is, from God's wrath, from God's judgment against all their sins, from the penalty of it, from the power of it, from the very presence of it. Who could do this? Only God himself, the one who's been sinned against, could uh, forgive sins. And this just carries forth the idea that's all through the Old Testament that 
God Himself is our salvation. For instance, Jeremiah 3.23, Surely in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. He is Emmanuel, this babe that's born. He is God with us. He says and does things only God can rightly say or do. Uh, We won't go through the whole litany of them. If you've read the Gospels at all, you know this is true. He accepts worship without uh, uh, rejecting it, which he would do if he were righteous and he wasn't deserving of it. He performs miracles, miracles unlike any that you hear about today where people with birth defects from from when they were born, uh, blind from birth, see again, Lame people that haven't uh, used their legs in years are leaping and jumping around after their encounter with Jesus. Uh, Dead people that are putrefying in the grave come forth and are uh, uh, revived to life through Him. I'll give you one other example. He claimed to be God in several places in the Scriptures. One of these is... uh, when he's interacting with the leadership of the Jews who are antagonistic to him, he, he says, You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And he's using the I am name of God from the Old Testament. He's claiming to be God, to have existed before Abraham and did the Jews get this? Well, the next verse says they picked up stones to throw at him. They're going to stone him for blasphemy. That wasn't lost on them. They understood exactly what he was, what he was claiming. So Jesus is not only God himself, uh, and here because of God's doing in a supernatural way, but he is also God with us. And that little word with, I wonder... What sense he means that? Well, there are many. We'll, we'll look at just uh, three, just briefly. Uh, first of all, he's with us in the sense of God drawing near to us. He's in our midst. He's brought uniquely near to us in the, in the person of Christ, in space and time and, and in history. You know, I've been reading a, a recent book by John Frame that's the history of... Western philosophy and theology going way back to the Greeks and going way before Christ and following up through to modern times. Uh, and part of that has been a controversy when God is part of a person's philosophy as to whether that God is so different, so remote, so transcendent that uh, in the extreme case we can know nothing about Him. We can't postulate anything about him because he's out of reach. He's uh, so far above us. Um, Or is he so near to us that everything that is is a part of God? uh, Called, uh, there's God himself, pantheism. Or another word you may not have heard, panentheism, which is really saying that everything there is is part of God, but there's more to God than everything we see around us, but he's interact, he's dependent on what he's made in some way. That's a piece of him. Um, and everything in between. 
But the biblical view, of course, is God is transcendent. He's separate from that which He's made, but He interacts with it. And He sends His Son. When Jesus comes, He uh, reveals God to us in a way that uh, is brand new, immediately, personally. You may remember Jesus' interaction with Philip, John 14 tells us, that, or Philip asks him, remember, show us the Father. We want to see the Father. We want to see God the Father. And what did Jesus say? He says, have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How do you say, show us the Father? By the way, that's another outright claim to deity. He claims to be one with the Father. So he's revealing God to us in a new way. The author of Hebrews starts out his book saying, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days he's spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. You know, I didn't come to Christ. He didn't uh, grab a hold of me till I was 30 years old. And I was 31 by the time... The first Christmas came around after uh, God had done a work in my heart. And the Christmas carols that I'd been singing all my life as a kid and growing up, and I always thought Christmas was nostalgic and nice, and you got presents, you had Christmas trees and all this good stuff. Santa Claus came. And, but suddenly, the words of these carols started jumping out at me in their significance. Maybe some of you have had that experience. Here's one. Hark the herald angels sing. This is the second verse. Christ by highest heaven adored. Christ the everlasting Lord. Christ is God. Late in time, behold Him come, offspring of the virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. What a line. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased is man with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. You know, he experienced our trials, our temptations, the effects of our sin. He's not a detached, remote, transcendent, aloof God, but one who has drawn near to us. He is God with us. Well, another thing we might ask if he is God with us is, Does that mean He came to be on our side? Is He with us as our advocate? Or is He against us as our adversary? Well, I think you know that in His incarnation, in His first coming to the earth, Scripture says He became one of us that He might serve us. He told His disciples, whoever would be first among you must be your slave even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Now, this is a concept that's not new to missionaries, which we have some in our midst. The, The process of enculturation. You need to become, identify with the people that you're going to minister to so that you can understand their thinking and better present the gospel in the midst of that. Uh, the Apostle Paul, you may recall, says that uh, 
To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. That captures the idea. Where does he get that from? He gets that from the ministry of the Lord Jesus, who, who is with us in this first incarnation as our advocate. He came to seek and save the lost. Uh, he will come again, and it won't be quite like that. Uh, but in this age, he is definitely for us as he is with us. He's also not just Emmanuel, but he is Jesus, the Savior, our advocate, our vindicator, our intercessor, our champion. Well, there's a third way that he's with us, and this is probably the most important of the ones we'll look at this morning. Anybody remember Pogo? Pogo might have said, he is us. <laughs> Not only is he with us, but Christ, the eternal Son of God, has wedded himself forever with humanity, taken on a human nature seamlessly. It's real. He has become one of us. He's united in his very essence or being or ontologically, if you like big words, united with us. He's the bridge between the creator of all and creation itself. Very mysterious, uh, most important to us. And the best the church has done to describe this is that he is one person with two natures, human and divine. You know, it took the church over 400 years to come up with that formulation and over against all kinds of heresies. Uh, and it, it happened at the Council of Chalcedon, or Chalcedon, if you prefer, in 451, this confession came out. And I'll just read you most of it. We then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach people to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man of a reasonable soul, it means a rational soul, and body, consubstantial with the Father according to the Godhead and consubstantial with us according to the manhood, in all things like unto us, without sin, begotten before all ages of the Father according to the Godhead, and in these latter days for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the Mother of God, according to the manhood, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, and so forth. There it goes on and on. Um, all those words are chosen very, very carefully to combat her heresies of all kinds in the church, such as Arianism that claimed that Christ was simply human, uh, the, that uh, like the pop culture Jesus is that, that we were talking about at the beginning. It stands over against the opposite, which is called docetism or several other names, Eutychianism, 
by people that held this view that he was not human at all. He was just a spiritual God being and he was just an illusion that he was, uh, that he was human. Versus uh, other heresies like Nestorianism, which the natures uh, were separate so much that he's two persons. He's almost schizophrenic. So you look through the Gospels trying to decide when he's speaking as God and when he's speaking as, as a human. He's uh, divided in himself. Um, and other, a whole list of other inadequate formulations of who Jesus was. So Matthew's genealogy, his point was Jesus had a human descent. That's how he starts out. His mother is Mary, verse 18. So Mary is, in a very real sense, the mother of God, as uh, our Catholic friends like to call her, but they they read a lot more into it than, than the Scriptures do. But Jesus... She gave birth, verse 25 says, Jesus was necessarily born of a woman. In Galatians, Paul wrote, When the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that He might redeem those who were under the law. Very important. He had to be human to keep the law. That's how you get righteousness. That's how you get into heaven. Uh, he did it, we didn't, and his righteousness is imputed to us. But he was human, he was born, he learned, he grew up, he spoke, he ate, he walked, he talked, he got tired, he became angry, he slept, he wept, he prayed, he worshipped, he suffered, and he bled, and he died. And he kept the law on our behalf. He bore our sins and God's wrath upon them in our place. It's the root of the biblical term expiation. Uh, all this is summed up in 2 Corinthians 5.21, which is a verse most of you know. If not, you should know it. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He came to die. He came to shed real human blood. By the way, this is something that God can never do. God who is life itself, the ground of all being. If, if God were dead, we wouldn't be sitting here talking about it this morning. There wouldn't be any universe existing if the one who maintains it moment by moment were gone. And his physical bodily resurrection in, in his human body is the whole basis of our hope, as Paul t- Peter tells us in 1 Peter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Well, not only is Jesus God, the Jesus of the Bible, and with us in all these different ways and probably more, uh, but there's another word in this name that we have to realize that it is to us that he has come and his coming demands some kind of response from each one of us. You know, if you go back to that passage in Matthew 16, after Jesus asked his disciples, who do they say I am? He asked them, who do you say that I am? Peter, always quick to blurt out something, says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, he didn't 
didn't deny that. He didn't say, no, no, Peter, that's, that's a little over the top. Uh, no, he said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You know, there's no neutral position when it comes to what you think about Jesus Christ. If your Jesus is one of those cultural icons, um, that's not the Jesus of the Bible. You're not believing what God has revealed in his word, what Jesus has said about himself as to who he is. Uh, if you're considering yourself not too sure, maybe tentative, kind of checking this out, uh, sitting on the fence about Jesus, you're really mistaken. You're on dangerous ground. It's a bipolar situation, if you will. Anybody know John 3.16? For God so loved the world, He gave His only Son. Whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Well, two verses later, He reiterates, whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. When he came this first time, he came as our advocate, full of mercy, grace, hope, uh, based on the promises of God for the future. When he comes again, it will be in judgment. There will be a finality to it. It will be the end of hope. Uh, for those that are his, it will be the beginning of the realization of hope. For others, not so. So the real question for us is not, is God with us, but are we with him? Do you believe this count in Matthew? Do you, have you put your faith in Jesus? Um, verse 21 says, he will save his people. Note, those who know his voice, those whom the Father has given him. John 10 Jesus says to him, the doorkeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. John 6, this is the will of him who sent me that all he has given me, of all them I lose nothing but raise them up on the last day. And John 17, he prays, I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those who thou hast given me, for they are thine. Later on he says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you has given, have given me, be with me where I am, in order that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me, for thou loved me before the foundation of the world. The implication of passages like this and what is taught just explicitly elsewhere in Scripture is that there are other people whom he will not save but will justly sentence when he comes back. You know, um, when Matthew quotes Isaiah, he understands that all of biblical prophecy, all of these Old Testament prophecies that we read and hear are not to just enlighten us, but they are a call to action. Uh, Peter says this explicitly in, in 1 Peter. He says, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful search and inquiry, 
seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. He says, therefore, gird your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Christ. What did Joseph do when he got this message from the angel? If you need help with that, you can look in verse 24. Joseph arose from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. You know, people spend a lot of time wondering what the will of God is for their lives. Well, Peter says it's be holy in conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. There's a whole sermon in that verse for sure. But how do we even find power to do that? How do we even get started when we are so unholy and the opposite of godly? Well, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, Mark tells us, and saying the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. Repent means turn from our sins and turn to the living God. Believe the gospel. Uh, John, at the end of his gospel, when he's trying to describe to people why he wrote it, says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. So, beloved, my prayer for all of us this Advent season is that we will consider these things, as our text tells us Joseph did, and ponder them in our hearts, as the Bible says Mary did, and give ourselves anew this time of year to this one who is uniquely, eternally God with us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this, your word. We pray it uh, may not leave us unaffected, but as you have promised, it would transform us, beginning with our minds and filtering to our hearts and becoming evident in the way that we live and act in the world. That as we go through the days and weeks ahead in this month to come, whenever we hear this name, Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, we might be filled again with wonder at that which you've done and with wonder as to who he is and why he came. And as we talk with others uh, during this season, if we run into these cultural Jesuses, we might point out a greater Jesus to those who are perishing. We ask that you would bring it about in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.